Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? Three is my favorite number, so I'm particularly excited about Season 3 starting next week. Every episode features an adoptee sharing a part of their adoption story. Some of these gracious individuals were nervous, anxious, anticipatory, and or thrilled about the healing potential in it for all of us. The bonus episode at the end of each season will today be a reading of Chapter 2 from my book. It is one of my favorite parts of my story, when I didn't know one other person biologically related to me. Full disclosure here, I'm considering creating an audiobook of The Truth So Far, A Detective's Journey to Reunite with Her Birth Family, that I self-published in 2015, and I'm testing out my ability to see the completion of that goal. Based on the feedback I get from you of this episode, I'll lean into taking action in that direction sooner rather than later. If you like this episode, I hope you will leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find this show too. During the course of your day, please tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word, hashtag Adoptee Land. Thank you for being here. Chapter 2, Allowing Adoption to Make Sense. I would not fully understand the gravity of being apart from my original family for many years to come. Once all settled into my new and final home during the summer of my third year on Earth in the year 1967, I was labeled an only child. I now lived in an affluent neighborhood where whites raced to move out as blacks increasingly moved into the area. For sale, quote-unquote, signs went up on lawns all over the city in previously predominantly white areas as black families signed the documents to close on their houses and become new homeowners. Chicago was already known for being one of the most segregated cities in the North, but seeing is believing, according to my mother. My parents were excited to own their first house, but most white people simply did not want to live around blacks for whatever reason, and they were fleeing to other places. Stereotypes and racism are to blame for the majority of fears people experience about other ethnic groups. When I tell you that the families on my block kept their lawns manicured, believed in law and order, wanted the best education for their children, went to church, paid their taxes, worked legitimate jobs every day, and wanted the same things that white people wanted for their families, I mean it. 
There were only two white families who remained on the block when I was a child, and they lived across the street from us. I believe that they really didn't see black people moving in the neighborhood as a reason to pack up and move away. On the same side of the street, just a couple of doors south, was another black family who had moved there about two years before my parents. They were among the other black families who also wanted a better quality of life in Chicago and chose a section of Washington Heights. Their youngest daughter, Paulette, seemed to look out for me. When I was teased or my jump rope taken by a bully, Paulette would take up for me just like a big sister. She called me Bonnie until such time that my mother insisted that she start calling me Jennifer. This particular family provided a helping hand to my parents. In my mind's eye, I can still see Paulette's parents waving, saying hello, sharing a smile, and being genuinely happy, kind to my new family. One month before my fourth birthday, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. He was fatally shot while standing on the balcony outside of his room. I can only imagine the emotional climate felt all over the world when this information was covered by the evening news. I had officially been a ghostin for nearly a year and was preparing to attend the Auburn Park Preschool about two miles from my home. It had been suggested that I was ready to start school early, but my mother insisted on waiting until the September after my fifth birthday. From all accounts, I had a smooth development at Auburn Park, but I really loved the following year in kindergarten with Mrs. Webster for half a day, Monday through Friday. I have memories of attending the elementary school just around the corner from my house as a five-year-old. One of my earliest recollections of testing the system and being rebellious during that time involved having to receive the dreaded school shots administered with a huge gun-like needle to the top of my left arm. A lasting mark has stood the test of time. There were two kindergarten classes, a.m. and p.m. For a time, I attended school in the p.m. On one occasion, I received a pinned-on note from Mrs. Webster stating that kindergartners were to be present in the a.m., on a future date for mandatory vaccinations. According to my mother's records, I stood 46 and a half inches tall and weighed 46 pounds. Sometime between getting the note attached to my clothing and arriving home for my mother to receive it, I threw it away. The day came and went for vaccinations and my parents were soon notified that I hadn't received my shots. The truth about the note being discarded by me would be the first of much lying and deceit to my parents over the years in an effort to avoid consequences, or so I thought. This was the first of many lessons that reminds me that we are free to choose, but not free from the consequences of our choices, quote unquote. And yes, I did eventually receive all of my vaccinations as required by law, back then, while never liking Mrs. Webster any less. As a child, it seemed like people were reluctant to discuss my adoption. 
and when it did come up in conversation, they seemed to tiptoe around it. So, you know that you were adopted? How does it feel? They would ask. I feel fine. How should I feel? I would inquire. Well, do you ever wonder about finding your real parents? Do you think about what happened to your real parents? Are you sad about your real parents giving you away? All of these questions had me wondering if I should be feeling badly or sadly about my adoption. After all, I was with my real parents, wasn't I? They were the ones loving me, caring for my needs, and preparing me for life's challenges. I rather enjoyed the questions and probing because it showed people's interests. And if they pitied me, they were at least interested in knowing more to my story. I wasn't aware of the adopted child syndrome, term first studied by Jean Payton in 1953. But perhaps others had given it some thought. Maybe more than a few people thought adopted children have problems in bonding, attachment disorders, lying, stealing, defiance of authority, and being prone to violence. I was only aware of the shamefulness of anyone being born out of wedlock because that was a part of society's value system at the time. Perhaps the greatest implication of shame being a part of the equation in adoption for me was the issue of being born illegitimate and an unwanted child. The fact that my birth family didn't keep me or gave me away was a painful thought. So I chose to view my adoption as my birth family wanting more from me than they felt they were able to provide at the time. Even as a child, I knew I had a choice in how I could view a subject. But I didn't realize just how influential I would allow others to be about me being an adoptee. I was beginning to process the subject of shame about adoption as I observed the people around me attempt to make sense of it. Black families often struggle with decisions made to separate from each other. And perhaps this is a cultural habit that relates to the days of slavery. Part of the issue with the perception of a situation is the language used to describe a person, place, or thing. For example, an adopted child or adopted person is more often referred to as an adoptee. Some other references of those in the constellation include birth, biological, original, or first parent, instead of natural parents. By the age of 10, I was rather comfortable in my skin as an adoptee and grew closer with my invisible companion. I could be heard engaging in conversations with myself as long as I thought I was alone. I would ask a question out loud and answer it out loud with such ease. If I thought someone might hear me, then I would cease my chatter. I had heard that talking to oneself was fine, but answering was a different story. I did both. I rather enjoyed the verbal exchanges, and I often laughed. My companion had now been with me a long time, and there was nothing to suggest that she was going to leave me. That was a good thing, because I felt wanted by my own company that would never reject or relinquish me. Yes, I'm adopted. I would divulge this information when asked, and on occasion, volunteer it. 
I wasn't using the term adoptee because I hadn't a clue about an adoption community and the terminology or jargon at that time. If there was such a group of adoptees meeting somewhere in Chicago, I knew nothing about it. If there was counseling available for members of the Constellation, it wasn't discussed with me. I don't recall any conversations with my parents about it or questions like, how does being adopted make you feel? I'm not saying that it didn't occur, but I was never exposed to a group setting specifically designed to develop fellowship with others who shared my experience. At that time, I was a drifter when it came to the subject of my adoption. I lacked definiteness of purpose about my identity as an adoptee. Typically, we are allowed or able to be with others who we share something in common, like members of our same sex, others of our nationality, those who share our same interests, people who you identify with because you're a part of that group. I don't ever remember being with other adoptees for the sole purpose of being with them because they were like me. By 1976, in the sixth grade, I was a 12-year-old tomboy, and I had never played with Barbie dolls. I don't even remember painting my nails. I loved softball, riding my bike, and becoming proficient at profanity like my dad. He was good at it. I wanted to drive a bus or be a taxi cab driver because I loved being outdoors and behind a steering wheel. My dad taught me how to drive before my 13th birthday, and I was the one who cut our grass every week. I preferred baiting hooks with night crawlers when fishing with my father over window shopping and spending all day in department stores with my mother. I was a daddy's girl who didn't mind traveling back and forth by car to his hometown of Panola, Alabama. When I first asked, where is the bathroom? While down south in Alabama, my dad pointed at the outhouse standing alone in a field. I recalled the flies and the horrible smell. The conditions in this small town of Panola, where most people were without indoor plumbing, was a world apart from the big city I knew as home in Chicago. I never complained too much about my dad's place of birth, not far from the Mississippi border, because he was proud of where he and five siblings had lived until they migrated to the north for a better way of life. My dad wasn't an intellectual or artistic person. He left that in the hands of his wife, my mother. Through my mother's attention to education, I became a strong reader and a lover of the arts. I enjoyed all kinds of music, poetry, and short stories. I regularly listened to her albums by Nat King Cole, Tony Bennett, Dinah Washington, Nancy Wilson, Johnny Mathis, Billie Holiday, and especially Sam Cooke. Live at the Copacabana on July 7th and 8th of 1964 was my favorite because Cook's voice was soothing on a medley when he sang, No, I'll never, never, never treat you wrong. Cook's laughter made me smile. My mother and I would listen to music in the living room for hours and sometimes get up and dance. My mother would bring discarded books home that said property, of Wendell Phillips High School for me to read when we couldn't get to the public library. She even enrolled me in the Evelyn Woods speed reading program. It helped me to learn to read twice as many books in half the amount of time. By now, 
I had on countless occasions asked my parents how they felt about my adoption. I often wondered what my parents really thought about it. They were consistent each time I asked them, saying, We couldn't have children of our own. We wanted a child, and you were chosen from all the other children. Quote, unquote. I always thought, Okay, being chosen will work for now. In the seventh grade, I was smoking cigarettes whenever I could steal one from my dad or bum one from older friends. I was still listening to all kinds of great music. I played favorites by artists like Stevie Wonder, Elton John, Diana Ross, Bob Dylan, James Brown, Jim Croce, James Taylor, Aretha Franklin, and many, many others. My dad said there were only two real singers in the world, the Queen of Soul and Mahalia Jackson. I always asked him to add Gladys Knight to the list, but he refused my request. It was around the turn from one decade to another that my dad was interested in obtaining his original birth certificate. So we packed our bags and headed to the capital of Alabama. He drove the entire 700-plus miles, headed south down Interstate 65 towards Indianapolis, followed by Louisville, then into Nashville, and right through Huntsville to Montgomery. When all was said and done on that journey... The state of Alabama had to create a birth certificate for my father based on the information he was able to supply them. At least he finally had a copy of his original birth certificate. I like to think I was a typical preteen with a bit of an edge, though not really knowing where it came from. I would light up a camel filter or a Marlboro in the neighborhood park near my home when I was supposed to be playing sports. I would join at least one other 12-year-old friend there. She was like most of my friends who resembled more than one other relative. I thought it was so cool and perhaps envied the fact that she, her brother, and sister all looked just like their parents. I wanted to experience looking like someone in my family. I wanted to say, I look just like so-and-so. Even if it were a grandmother or an aunt, not my parents or a sibling, Interestingly enough, I did look like one of my first cousins on my dad's side, but it wasn't the same because I knew I had been adopted. People who didn't know or who forgot I was adopted were always commenting, I knew you and your cousin were related because you look alike. It was nice, but not the same as looking like someone related by blood. The issue of genetics seemed important as I entered eighth grade and prepared to go on to high school, even though I knew several biologically related families where members didn't really look like each other. I was beginning to observe the nuances of remaining with one's biological family, but I would not fully understand the gravity of being apart from my original family for many years to come. I didn't consciously think about being an adoptee day in and day out, but rather would be reminded of it from time to time. Occasionally, someone might say, You're adopted? Oh, okay. And then we go back to talking about something else. The whole adoption issue and reuniting with my birth family didn't seem important by the time I was ready to leave high school. I was a ghost and through and through and rarely heard the name Bonnie mentioned by family or friends, but that part of me was still there. When it was sparingly spoken, 
It sounded like someone I knew of but didn't entirely remember. She had been silenced in a way and replaced with the routines of life. I no longer felt like I needed a constant companion as in my earlier years. The type of shame, secrecy, and lies of the 1960s were a thing of the past in many ways by the 1980s. Nearly everything related to adoption was changing slowly but surely for the better. The Roe v. Wade decision had been in existence for a decade by 1983. Fewer and fewer babies were available for adoption in the U.S. because the stigma associated with teen pregnancy had significantly diminished from past decades. I knew of several friends in high school who became pregnant as seniors, juniors, and even sophomores. They each kept their baby. In fact, these young mothers finished high school and many went on to college while raising their child. One of my friends told me, I didn't expect to become pregnant, but my baby is the best thing that has happened to me and my family. What a difference a couple of decades made in the lives of so many families, including those affected by adoption. The Cannes Film Festival award-winning movie by Mike Lee Secrets and Lies of 1996 is about the closed adoption of a young black woman, Hortense, seeking her birth mother. She discovers her mother is white, and the resulting chaos leads to a series of revelations. This story is breathtaking, wildly humorous, poignant, and especially heartwarming as it weaves its way through the issue of closed adoptions, shame, and secrecy. I can relate to this film, especially in a scene where Hortense tells a girlfriend, we, adoptees, choose our parents so we can get it right, quote unquote. What if we are always co-creating our circumstances and situations? Imagine having a strong desire, but not necessarily being specific about it or knowing exactly how to manifest it. Then you decide, based on what happens in your life, to intentionally recreate something that's closer to what feels more comfortable for your purpose in life at this time. For a moment, ignore your verbal responses and consider your vibration to every single thing going on around you. It reminds me of the research that has demonstrated how nonverbal communication is 93% more reliable than verbal communication. Body language and our energy is the best source of valid information. How would this information impact my thoughts as an adoptee in search of her birth family? For now, rest in an interlude about one of the most important parts of our identity, a given name. If you are an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, please visit JenniferDianeGhostin.com. Thank you so much for being here, and be sure and follow me on Instagram at Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land.